0: Now, all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers.
1: Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Delighted to be back with you again this week. And we are uh, t- delighted also to welcome Bruce Stanley, who has been with us on numerous occasions. Bruce is President and Chief Executive Officer of the Methodist Home for Children, which is a advocacy group for a- and a- a delivery of services to families and children and has been for many, many years. It's uh, changed courses during this time to uh, provide many, many additional services through the years to uh, uh, almost all of North Carolina now. Uh, we'll talk more about that later on, but uh, Bruce also has become, in his uh, service there, uh, sort of a, a real uh, advocate for children and family in families in many situations. And, uh, Bruce, that's kind of what I wanted to start off talking about today today. Uh, Uh, I think you mentioned just a few moments ago that uh, uh, the decline of the family may be uh, partially responsible for some of the acts of violence we're seeing. Absolutely. We
2: had an event last week at the legislature, and Dr. Sam Gray, who's a psychologist with many years of clinical experience, uh, criminal psychology at uh, former Dorothea Dix Hospital and then in private practice and now with us at our crisis and psychological assessment centers, was asked by one of the legislators if he could comment uh, in his professional opinion uh, uh, on whether he had a sense of uh, increasing frequency of offenses or increasing severity of violent acts. And Dr. Gray sadly nodded his head yes in assent and indicated he thought that there had been an increase in both. legislator uh, responded with a follow-up question. Uh, and ask if uh, why, and he felt, uh, you could attribute it to the decline uh, in the nuclear family, that fewer children um, being raised um, in a stable environment, many with uh, parents that are barely able to care for themselves, uh, much less care for their children, and also a breakdown, some uh, in neighborhoods in which you don't have uh, family and friends uh, who are out there looking after the
1: well-being of the child. Bruce, it's always sort of uh, having grown up and being the age I am um, the uh, I, of course I you know I lie about my age considerably <laughs> but uh, uh, I did uh, remember some things in the 40s you're almost
2: old enough not to have
1: to do that Don well thank you <laughs> uh, but uh, one of the things that we uh, uh, used to see is that uh, uh, families ate together all the time I mean you always had a evening meal together, and, um, and usually at lunch in the summer when school was out, you, you uh, broke bread together. And that's, that's kind of
2: gone. And that is a profound insight from the world of behavioral health. Uh, in our multi-purpose group homes that we operate for the Division of Juvenile Justice, uh, the design of the home really centers uh, on the eating space And on the family meal, and we have a small population, only eight who are there, boys and girls, served together. But one of the vital things is that three times a day, they gather around the table. And Grace is said, and individuals share uh, how their day is going, what they're looking forward to, and people come to know one another. And we're trying to create for them a sense of family. And our hope is that when they leave us, that they're going to be taking that with them and replicating that if not in their uh, home of origin, then as they grow into adulthood, that they're going to understand the importance of that for their own children and their own families.
1: Well, that's sort of a simple
2: thing, but it, it has gotten lost. Ab- absolutely it has, yeah. and it's gotten lost under um, electronic devices in which people have their head down and aren't talking to one another or their earbuds in so they can't hear yeah. if someone is talking to them. It's also gotten lost with the proliferation of activities that would include athletic events and other things.
1: Well, and the schedules that uh, the, the uh, young kids go through today is so packed. You know, they they have activities at all hours of the day. They they uh, really just don't have much time to be alone. You no, know, ab- absolutely. And speaking of being old, I remember when TV
2: dinners uh, were popular and. People had fear then that the, the TV dinner was going to be the demise of the family dinner hour because everyone would put their TV dinner on their TV tray. On their TV and, tray. And, and simply tune into the screen. And I think
1: that that was mild compared to what we face today. Well, see, I, I've been trying to tell my good friend Jim Goodman that television is responsible for all this. It, you know, <laughs> Uh, You could have the radio on the background, uh, but television required sitting there. And see, I blamed uh, he and all my uh, friends who were in television for the demise of the family. Uh,
2: It's always wise to point the finger elsewhere.
1: Well, see, I've always said this theory that God did not intend pictures to go through the air, just sound. That's that's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, There are a lot of people that would disagree with me. But television and social media, uh, have also worked against all this sort of thing because we have a tremendous amount of time spent uh, when we are alone, but we are sharing at that time with people who are not family.
2: And there are, and one of the ways that social media works against us uh, is that we are uh, creatures of habit and of impulse, and, and people need to learn not to press send. And when somebody sees something that comes across one of the uh, social media it is so easy to make an immediate and emotional response um, that you begin to get uh, poor behavior and people get drawn into that
1: well it's uh, it, it, the the family life uh, and lifestyle has just changed so Dramatically, it's uh, and I, uh, you know, I guess we have to adapt to it rather than go back to it because that's
2: not going to happen. Oh, it's not, and there's, of course, you know, great advantages uh, to having the ability to do research online and to be able to, you know, scroll through your television and not simply see what cable is bringing you but use various apps uh, in order to watch a great work of history and, and to learn something significant. But families do need to monitor that. And my wonderful wife, uh, Melissa, who was a teacher for many years, uh, decided early on that during school years, that um, school nights, that our children were going to get one hour of television a week. And she and my son settled on Lost as being their bonding medium. And, and, and so that was the show that they, uh, they watched together. But we wouldn't forbid it, but we would seriously regulate it. And we also put the computer in the middle of the house, uh, so that we could monitor the use of that. And so they weren't up online at 2 a.m. And then when they got cell phones and personal communication devices, uh, we made sure that they didn't have those in their room after it was bedtime. And so there are ways to manage that and make sure that it is productive and, and instead of becoming destructive.
1: So uh, are there any other major changes that you've observed besides, of course, the advent of television and the changes that's brought about in the way that uh, our off hours are spent? Uh, I, for example, um, uh, households where both, uh, both spouses are uh,
2: working. And one of the stresses, I think, that is contributing to some of this decline and perhaps a, a lack of shared parenting and a lack of common time together And it may not be an obvious impact, but is um, what's happening with the growing gap between the poor uh, and the wealthy in our country. And when you have got working poor who are having to cobble together uh, a couple, if not three jobs uh, in order simply to pay rent and put bread on the table, uh, that means that they're at work instead of being at home and able to supervise and able to contribute. And it's not a choice anyone wants to make, but it's one that's made out of necessity. And as long as that gap continues to worsen, those circumstances are going to continue to be severe. So let
1: me ask you this. Where does where does the church or the community of faith fit into all of this? And where does it uh, uh, take its role and, 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 in fact, some changes or provide some services? One of the things that the church really does need to
2: do is to step forward and become responsible. Uh, when I was the director of field education at Duke Divinity School, we had a pastor from a large congregation in Roxbury, uh, which is one of the uh, more challenging neighborhoods in Boston. And he had become frustrated with gang involvement with his middle schoolers and high schoolers and took him a while to convince the gang leaders that he was serious about conversation and not simply looking to participate with the police and bust them. But he did get them to come in and sit down. And he asked them uh, about their recruiting and why they had such a great influence And one of the gang leaders just simply shrugged and said, well, where's your deacons? And he said, I beg your pardon. And he said, well, we know when the time the kids get out of school and we're standing outside the gate of the school and we're offering to get them a new pair of Nikes uh, or get them a new shirt. And he said, I don't think we've ever seen any of your your deacons out there trying to chat the young men up and trying to recruit them and bring them in. And he said that was just a you know, cup of cold water thrown in his face and realized, my goodness, he's correct, that we have not been adequately present. And we can't just simply, as the church, sit back in a receptive posture and wait for people to come through the door. We do
1: have to be very active and step forward. And we have some organizations like Boys and Girls Clubs and and Boy Scouts and so forth. But essentially, percentage-wise, they're not serving as many people as they once served. Absolutely. And and so it does become a matter
2: of us being aggressive and taking the services to them.
1: Well, it's, uh, it's a challenging and interesting situation, and it all involves the home. And that uh, uh, leads me to what we're going to be talking about during the rest of the program, some of the many services and programs that the Methodist Home for Children is involved in. Uh, very briefly, uh, give a little bit of history as a setup for our next segment on what the Methodist Home for Children is now compared to what it was when it was begun. <laughs> and we began in the
2: 1890s. Uh, when uh, some people who were meeting at Edenden Street United Methodist Church in downtown Raleigh bought 60 acres and what back then was the woods uh, on the edge of Raleigh and that stretched from Peace Street up toward the Five Points neighborhood. And as an orphanage, we grew to a point where we had on that 60-acre campus 350 during the Depression and World War II. And circumstances change, fewer true orphans, and so we made a decision to become community-based instead of campus-based And as a result, uh, we serve about 1,400 children, youth, and their families during the course of a year,
1: and somebody from every county uh, in North Carolina. And of course, it's uh, there are many, uh, you've sort of changed, I guess, to family counseling as much as uh,
2: counseling children. Absolutely. We have a service array that sometimes functions as a service continuum. And our programs include early childhood and in our early childhood programs at the Jordan Center and soon at the Curtis Center. We work not only with the children themselves during the school day, but also with the families after hours and on weekends whenever we've got the opportunity. We do foster care. We do therapeutic foster care. individual homes we do family preservation and family reunification and which is based uh, upon the premise that children do better with their biological relatives and so we're always trying to prevent family fracture and keep that structure intact and then we do have 12 residential facilities for a variety of services that are stretched across
1: the state our guest is bruce stanley and we will be back with more right after these messages
0: I'm Howie Mandel. Did you know attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in adults is a real and treatable medical disorder? The symptoms of ADHD make it difficult to pay attention, focus, be organized, complete tasks, and maintain relationships. Talk to your doctor and visit adultADHDIsrael.com. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis.
1: We're back with Bruce Stanley, president and CEO of the Methodist Home for Children. An advocacy group for childrens and families, a provider of services all across the state of North Carolina. Uh, Bruce, we we had a great time in the first segment talking about the changes in in lifestyle that may have led to uh, uh, more severe problems in the area of. Uh, crime and uh, safety, uh, but I know you are very concerned right now with school safety because you're on a crime commission of the state of North Carolina that's working about that. Where do we stand on school safety? Because that's a touchy thing. Do we do we allow teachers to be armed, for example? Uh, how do we provide uh, insurance that our children are going to be safe at school? Well, the citizens
2: of North Carolina should really be proud of the work that was done by the governor's crime commission and their committee on school safety. Uh, Joanne McDaniel resourced that commission. It was led by a couple of sheriffs, uh, Alan Cloninger and Donnie Harrison, and included a uh, an array of people. I was uh, fortunate to be part of that uh, as a representative of the provider community. And there are a number of components of school safety uh, that are crucial. One of the sobering things for me was that when the law enforcement uh, professionals are speaking they aren't talking uh, about a violent act and saying if they're saying when and recognizing sadly our human brokenness and predisposition uh, toward that but among the factors uh, that they identified uh, is that over the course of time the fbi looking back at these mass shooting incidents have identified what they call leakage And said that in most of these instances, there were a minimum of three times uh, when someone who committed an atrocity had shared with a family member or friend their intent. And the family member or friend, when quizzed about why would you not report that and why was that not disclosed, did you not take it seriously? Uh, Were you just wishing and hoping or were you perhaps just praying about it? the family member and friends said that they were afraid that if they called that the only response would be a legal one and that it would only be law enforcement and they recognized the individual as somebody who was troubled and in need of mental health and they had no confidence that mental health services would be provided for them.
1: Now, you know, we're all worried about uh, uh, providing more facilities and and uh, better pay for teachers, for example, in the area of education. But if we have to also... Uh, provide uh, school safety in the area of uh, uh, in excess of what we're doing now that's going to come out of those budgets Uh, well it is and directly
2: or indirectly uh, yes and and one of the things that the committee spent a lot of time on was the issue of what are known as the sros the school resource officers which would be law enforcement professionals in this in the classroom and in the school and the proper use of those individuals and the proper training one of the challenges you face, for instance, Wake County having the largest school system in the state, there are a number of jurisdictions that are supplying uh, school resource officers. So you've got the counties, and, and so you will have the sheriff's office, and then you've got municipalities. So you've got Morrisville, you've got Nightdale, you've got the city of Raleigh. And how do you have one standard of training and, and implement that across that? We also um, know that there are some schools that have a safety officer in them, and others do not. And those are budgetary constraints, and we don't want that to become a political football where the law enforcement people say that's not our expense; that's the education uh, system's expense. And we don't want that tossed back and forth in that way. But that that is a tremendous issue: the quality and training of those people.
1: So now, one of the suggestions that some folks have is to arm some teachers. Is that a solution or another problem? Uh,
2: that clearly is a suggestion that is made and that was voiced. The uh, committee had three public hearings. And there were a couple of individuals from advocacy groups who wanted to make sure uh, that that opinion was expressed. Law enforcement professionals want fewer guns, not more guns. And they also recognize that for school safety, if you are talking about a mass shooter incident, that you really have got a response time of about 120 seconds uh, when the act is occurring. And, and so it, it becomes problematic and is, and is really, really difficult. The important thing is to intervene and stop it upstream. One of the things that North Carolina deserves some credit and praise for uh, is that a few years ago, they began uh, operating with Division of Juvenile Justice uh, Crisis and Psychological Assessment Centers. And Methodist Home for Children is the operator of that particular service. There's one in Butner, one in Winston-Salem, and one in Asheville. And when young people uh, have been identified uh, as having made threats, uh, whether from their classmates, whether they've done that online in one form or another, uh, they can be sent. And our staff has an opportunity to sit down with them uh, directly upon intake, but then also to interact and be with them for up to a month and determine whether this is somebody who simply was posturing and being incautious or whether this was somebody who really was planning and who was in need of deep treatment and that is an important intervention you've got to stop it on the other side of the street you can't stop it in the hallway of the school
1: now uh, we've talked about all sorts of things uh, i do want to ask one more question uh, i think we've learned uh, some i don't know maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago we became aware that the problem really starts in the middle school we always thought it was high school there for a while but it's middle school is that where it starts or does it start earlier
2: No, middle school is exactly where that starts, Mm -hmm. and and it does begin at that point in time, and it's important for us to recognize that, and it may be hard to conceive of, um, but that a child that young uh, is able to articulate and plan that. But our kids are exposed to so many things, so much sooner than they used to be, that middle school is exactly where a lot of the problems begin to present themselves. And and it's not always easy to see uh, at a distance, Mm -hmm. and one of the young people who came to our crisis and assessment center was, by uh, outward appearance, somebody who had a a violent predisposition, and the young man had actually been building some bombs, and he had schematic drawings that he had worked out and sketched of the school and the location of the classrooms, hallways, but truth of the matter is, he wasn't a bad kid, Uh, he was an engineer, And when we did psychological testing on him, that includes IQ testing, and the staff gave him an advanced test for engineering that um, helps you determine somebody's ability uh, to work uh, spatially, and he was just off the charts. And they found out that he wasn't so much interested in building bombs as he was just interested in building. And I liked firecrackers and M-80s yeah. and things that made a loud noise, and so we were able to redirect and find a, a, a positive path uh, for this young man. And so again, from a distance, he may have looked like somebody that was a threat, uh, but he was not.
1: Now, we've, uh, the, the word uh, drugs has come up several times in our conversation, but the, uh, the drug problem is is that getting worse or better? I'm going to say it continues to be
2: severe. At Methodist Home, about 80% of that 1,400 children, youth, and their families that we serve uh, come from homes uh, that are substance-affected, and that is either uh, drug use by the parents, uh, the children, and in many cases, both. North Carolina continues to be challenged because we've got a beautiful, wonderful coastline uh, with easy ingress. We've got highways that crisscross the state including I-95, which is the corridor between Miami and New York, and there is an ever-present supply uh, of of drugs that are coming in, as well as the ones that are manufactured and made here.
1: Monkey see, monkey do. Uh, The the children see their parents do certain things, and so they think some of them are okay, Uh, uh, and parents sometimes endorse things uh, uh, that uh, maybe parents wouldn't have endorsed years before um uh now you also see stories where kids come out and say i see this and i'm not going to do that what how does that work because some some kids say that's not the way i'm going to raise my children others say you know that's the way it is and
2: people internalize uh, life experiences very very differently And we have had children from the same families who have reacted uh, in ways that uh, you would even wonder if they had come from the same roof. Had uh, one family uh, with a number of children uh, who had been homeless for a while and had been given shelter uh, in the community, frankly, uh, in a funeral home. Uh, That they had room upstairs where staff would stay and the owner of that funeral home taking pity on this family and wanting to keep social services out of it. Had housed them up above that for a while one of those young men uh, became a tremendous scholar and committed himself to school and to education and was bound and determined that he was not gonna live that life uh, and that he was gonna raise his own family in a stable way and had a great sense of gratitude for the people who when they were falling through the cracks had pulled them up and sheltered them and given them food and a place to live. And then he had siblings uh, who received that experience very differently and they just burned with rage and resentment. Why did that happen to us? We were mistreated. Why didn't we have things other people had? And they became angry and um, ended up in the law enforcement system and with a ton of criminal involvement. And, again, ind- individuals receive that differently.
1: I know of a situation where uh, there was a family who had six sons. Three became ministers and three became alcoholics. Uh, and uh, the, the, when you'd quiz the father, he'd say, you know, I love them equally. I thought I raised them the same.
2: And they receive it differently. Yes. And, and those those would be six different individuals.
1: So how much of this involves training parents?
2: A lot of it involves training parents. And I spoke uh, in, in our service array uh, about doing work with family reunification and family preservation. And we use evidence-based models in which we are trying to provide structure for the homes. Some of the things would seem routine that you ought to have a budget and, and know what your income is, that your money ought to be f- spent first uh, on things that are healthy uh, instead of upon buying beer, that there ought to be a bedtime that is established, mealtime, as we've already discussed earlier in this broadcast. Uh, but a lot of it has to do with educating the parents and teaching them uh, how to interact with their children.
1: And uh, that, as we said, is sometimes a real challenge, even for the very best of parents. <laughs> so parent training is not just for those in crisis.
2: Absolutely. Um, We had one woman whose inability to discipline her child was uh, frustrating, one of our staff members. And it was clear to him that this uh, young child was really the one who was in charge in the home. This staff member uh, happened to be about six foot, four inches tall. And when he was trying to do role plays and rehearse with the mom how to address the child, she was having trouble because she's looking up at him. And she said, oh, I just feel so intimidated talking to you. So he took his shoes off and got down on his knees and put his knees in his shoes so it looked like those were his feet and then had her practice speaking over the top of his head and uh, had a wonderful clinical
1: breakthrough. We have the General Assembly in session. We have Congress in session. What's some legislation that is either pending or needs to be pending that will affect the work that you and other organizations like this do? One of the most important
2: things for North Carolina is the implementation of Raise the Age. That legislation was passed about 18 months ago, and North Carolina finally joined the rest of the nation. So now what is that? We became the last state to recognize that 16-, 17-year-olds are teenagers and prior to that time we were placing them in the adult prison population and not treating them as juvenile offenders and so now through age 18 uh, you are treated as a juvenile in north carolina that starts october 31st the challenge for north carolina is funding services for that population it yields the logic that more offenses are committed by the older teens instead of the younger teens and the division of juvenile justice uh, out of the department of public safety knows, because we've got census of this population in the adult prisons, that they're going to have an increase for juvenile justice of 64% uh, in their population base. And the important thing for us is to be there so we can provide therapeutic interactions. Because if you send an adolescent uh, off to a prison, it's well documented, you've sent them off to criminal college. And their pride in criminality increases, as well as their knowledge and their skill set of criminal behavior You send them to a therapeutic environment and you've got an opportunity to divert them and to keep them out of the criminal justice system for life it is not only the humane thing to do but it is the uh, great savings as required one of the pieces of legislation that is uh, in front of uh, the state of north carolina is known as the juvenile justice reinvestment act in 2008 there was about 175 million dollars in the budget for juvenile justice there currently is about a hundred and twenty five million and so what is needed in order to cover this, raise the age, and is to restore about fifty million dollars of funding in order to cover that gap and provide for the influx of these teens that are coming in. And that will be a number of services. It'll be assessments. It's going to be treatment. And yes, in some cases, it's going to be uh, residential programs. They're going to be assigned uh, and sent by a judge. And that's a public safety issue as well as a treatment issue. But we really need to provide support for the Division of Juvenile Justice through the Juvenile Justice Reinvestment Act.
1: Bruce, how can people find out more about the work and the varied programs of the Methodist Home for Children?
2: I would invite you to go to our website and look at MHFC.org. That's our agency's initials, Methodist Home for org, And there you can see uh, some of the youth, some of the children, some of the families that we've served. Uh, you've got an opportunity to read some of their stories, and you can also watch some videos in which they are telling you in their own words. And we would uh, be delighted to engage anybody. And feel free to email or call.
1: And of course, uh, it would also give you. Uh, the opportunity to uh, help you with uh, fundraising and and, and paying for all of this.
2: Absolutely, and we're delighted to come speak and to share if you've got a a congregation or a group that you're
1: part of. Bruce Stanley, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, uh, We hope you will come back and be with us again and have some good news uh, as we continue this battle. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that. Uh, Jason will have another guest for us next week. So to next week, same time, same station. Have a nice week.
0: Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald, inviting you to join us again next week, same time for Carolina Newsmakers.